All your base are belong to us. Hello and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. Uh, I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I willingly read some of Hero with a Thousand Faces for this episode. I'm Mary, I'm a digital marketer, and if you would have told me nine years ago or so that we would be doing a podcast, a serious podcast, where we go deep dive into some philosophy about Magic Mike... I would have thought you were crazy. <laughs> the thing with Magic Mike XXL is that no matter how many times I tell people it's a good movie, nobody believes me until I finally sit them down to watch it. I believed you because I trust you. <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's like, when I tell somebody the, the podcast we do, depending on the person, Magic Mike will be the first one I tell them about or I won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we are going to talk today almost exclusively about the second movie. Uh, in the Magic Mike series, Magic Mike XXL. Um, but I am going to give a brief summary of Magic Mike because there are some comparisons I want to make between the two. So in the first movie, uh, Ma- Mike, played by Channing Tatum, helps Adam, played by Alex Pettifer, uh, make some extra cash through both finding customers and dancing at Dal- Dallas's, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, um, at Dallas's club. Mike is attracted to Brooke, played by Cody Horn. Uh, who is Adam's sister. Mike has been saving up money from his many jobs to counterbalance his bad credit and get a loan to start a custom furniture business. But when Adam ends up losing a backpack full of drugs, he bails him out of trouble with all the money he's saved. But he it does end up with Brooke in the end. That's missing like a ton of details, but it covers the basic plot of the movie. I did not like the first movie as much as I like Magic Mike XXL, but that's because they're extremely different movies. Magic Mike, the movie, is actually a really interesting story about class. Like, it's like genuinely very interesting. I The thing I don't like about it is that it ends up coming down, it feels like to me, it ends up coming down hard on the side of like living a the, the life of like an exotic dancer is almost inherently a life of vice and uh, destruction. And I think that's something that 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 Magic Mike XXL counterbalances really neatly. Um, So I really like them as a package deal. But in terms of like pure fun, I recommend Magic Mike XXL. If you want to think a little bit deeper about class, pair it with Magic Mike. So interesting. Um, And it's the same people who did both of them, right? It's the same director and same writer. Not the same director. He worked as a photographer on Magic Mike Ah. XXL, or cinematographer on Magic Mike XXL. But same writer and different director for XXL, if I remember correctly. Hmm. So Magic Mike XXL starts out with Mike, who now owns his own custom furniture business. We are not told how. It just happened at some point. He did it. Uh, He He did Hard work. (laughs) um the movie starts out with him receiving a phone call from tarzan who's played by kevin nash that something has happened to dallas mike shows up where he's told to go expecting a funeral but it's all the members of the kings of tampa at a a pool party it turns out that dallas and adam has have left the country and started a new show in macau uh and the annual annual stripper convention is coming up (laughs) the kings of tampa want to have one last ride but lack their mc and one dancer um because they no longer have mike mike initially refuses to go but while he's working in his workshop, he hears Pony on the radio and cannot help but dance and decides to go. Um, 
While they're on the way, the guys do MDMA in their frozen yogurt truck that Tito, played by Adam Rodriguez, and Tobias, played by Gabriel Iglesias, own. And they have this discussion about how they've all been adhering to the notably hyper-masculine personas that Dallas ascribed to them, such as Richie, uh, played by Joe Manganiello, um, who always plays a fireman despite being afraid of fire. To prove that they don't need Dallas's routine, Mike essentially dares Richie to make a cashier smile with an original routine that he makes up on the spot, which Richie succeeds at. Um, they throw out their old costumes, like literally throw them out the window. Uh, they throw out the costumes of personas and plan to make new ones. But Tobias, who is inexplicably driving the yogurt truck despite being on MDMA, <laughs> crashes and ends up in the hospital they have to find a new mc a new ride and presumably a dj uh and mike begrudgingly takes them to a place called domina headed by an old flame named rome played by jada pinkett smith rome is reluctant to help mike after he walked out on her for dallas but nonetheless takes him on a tour of the club which caters exclusively or almost exclusively to black women and features black men praising dancing singing to and celebrating the women attending Mike dances at Rome's request, convincing her to help them on her journey. She sends Andre, played by Donald Glover, to drive them, but says that she won't MC. The guys continue on their journey to a mansion where Tito knows somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Megan? We don't know who Megan is. Um, I'm sure. And encounter this group of older women gossiping about their divorces and lack lackluster marriages. Mike meets up again with Zoe, who uh, played by Amber Heard, who he met earlier in the film, and learns that her plans have gone awry after she was taken advantage of by another photographer. The guys cheer up the women with singing and dancing, and Mike tells Zoe to come to the convention to get her smile back. The next day, they arrive at the convention, get signed in, and begin building their sets and practicing their routines. The convention begins, and all of the routines showcase the real personalities of the dancers. Mike dances for Zoe, who does indeed smile again, and the film ends with the dancers watching fireworks while Zoe goes off with her friends. I think the moment that I realized this is a very political movie was going from the uh, the house where all the black women were having a good time yeah. to the wine moms. Yeah. I was like, they're saying something, aren't they? Yeah. Right well, and the drag queen, you go from, well, I mean, there's the MDMA scene between, but you go from the drag queen, like, beach bonfire, mm -hmm. and then the MDMA scene, and then Domina. Yeah. Like, the, it's, it's genuinely really interesting. Yeah. So, the first thing I want to talk about is the hero's journey. Um, Your favorite. My favorite. So, and I'll explain if you haven't heard me go off about the hero's journey before. Uh, the hero's journey is a theory developed by Joseph Campbell. Uh, it's also called the monomyth uh, that suggests that many of, her of history's greatest and most influential stories, so think the Odyssey, Moby Dick, etc., um, follow the same fra framework. And that I, here's the thing. That sounds like, yeah, okay. But I really hate this theory, not because it is technically wrong. Many classic stories do, in fact, follow a similar framework. But because it is a case of source selection bias, i.e. Campbell leaves out stories that do not fit his framework, um, because it is so masculine focused and because it really irks me when people use it as a roadmap to writing a good story, it is not. You can hear more about this on our Star Wars prequel episode. Which should surprise you, 0%. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about it here because while I would say that the hero's journey is present in Magic Mike XXL, it is doing some really interesting things. The most basic overview of the framework is that there are there are various stages comprised of various smaller stages. So there's like three major stages which have different bits within them. 
um, that the hero progresses through over the course of his, and this is gendered pronoun intentional, um, the hero progresses through over the course of his journey. Not all of these smaller stages appear in every story, but many of them do. Uh, the primary stages are the departure, the initiation, and the return, um, which all encompass important themes that Campbell sees within the archetypal hero's journey. Um, within the departure, you have stages like the call to adventure, refusal of the call, and the belly of the whale. Within the initiation, you have the meeting with the goddess, atonement with the father, and apotheosis, which means the glorification, uh, the glorification or deification of a figure. And within the return, you have the ultimate boon, the crossing of the return threshold, master of two worlds, and freedom to live. These are not all of the stages, but I think without wasting your time going in depth <laughs> on each one, you can see how many of them appear in Magic Mike XXL. It's very clear. Watching Magic Mike XXL for the second time, they got to Domina, and I was like, this is meeting with the goddess. Yeah. This is meeting. Holy shit. Refusal of the call. This is the hero's journey. <laughs> um, so another reason why the hero's journey bothers me, it is so, so easy to say, look, this story follows the hero's journey and do fuck all with that information. And I, I think that's the majority, like I've obviously, like I consumed a lot of Star Wars stuff and mm. like that's always, I'm not going to say always, there's, there's people who don't, but a lot of times people will only talk about Star Wars within that framework, but not actually talk about <laughs> what it's doing yeah and if they are is talking about how the new ones or the prequels don't do it well like right it's not really like they're not talking about anything yeah that's why i think it's boring yeah it's just it's not like the hero's journey itself is not bad but it's not a roadmap to telling a good story and it's also not itself the end of criticism right like i think the reason that i'm talking about it here is because i actually do think that magic mike does something really interesting with it but if Magic Mike simply followed the hero's journey, I because here's the thing. I watched Magic Mike and I was like, there are elements of the hero's journey to this. Why is it interesting? Like, why yeah. does it still interest me despite that? And that's what this essay I'm going to talk about. That's what this this essay really goes into. I don't want to sound mean when I say this. And I'm not I'm not meaning to sound mean. But I think for a lot of people who don't consistently like think about these things when they are able to attach a story to like the hero's journey it feels good because you know what you're talking about yeah. and then but that's where it ends like i'm not saying that they're stupid or something like that no. but like i think it's when you are able to connect it to something that is a philosophical thought right like yeah like the hero's journey is a lot right and you're able to easily make that connection it makes you feel good mm-hmm. um but they don't go further yeah it's it's for me the hero's journey should be a starting point in a conversation about a piece of media whereas for a lot of people it's the end of the conversation yeah. and that's it's just not interesting to me. Um so great cool a story follows a story structure famously outlined in a 20th century by a 20th century white man like so what. It only becomes interesting to me when we look into how that framework manifests within the story itself which is what we're going to do now. Because while the hero's journey is certainly at work within Magic Mike XXL, it is not doing the typical thing of glorifying a man's mastery over nature or discovering his birthright to rule or whatever. Those are very common ways that the hero's journey manifests. It's sorry to is this does the hero's journey also appear in the first one? Um, not so much because that's okay. that's much less of a that's more about getting fucked by capitalism. Okay, okay. <laughs> because Magic Mike XL XXL is a genuinely fascinating movie, like even 
you know, even setting the hero's journey aside, it's a really interesting movie. And the way that it deals with the hero's journey is one of the things that make it so interesting. So in maybe my favorite essay on the internet, uh, Helena Fitzgerald, who writes my absolute favorite newsletter called Grief Bacon, um, Fitzgerald discusses the hero's journey and whether Magic Mike XXL fits into it. Fitzgerald argues that the monomyth appeals to both capitalism and misogyny based on the ways that these stories center the individualistic achievements of men, typically men placed in a position to rule over others to some degree. What what makes Magic Mike XXL an interesting take on the monomyth, she argues, is that despite it lining up fairly neatly at certain points, it resists the misogynist and capitalist leanings of the hero's journey. So this is a quote from that essay, which is called Magic Mike XXL is basically the Odyssey, but with butts, (laughs) uh, which is by Helena Fitzgerald. Magic Mike has no interest in dads or kings or achievement. The primary point of the hero's journey is that the quest leads up to a decisive victory that can be won. The day can be saved. Good can triumph over evil. But Magic Mike, although it seems like a quest, is a story totally uninterested in victory or an achievement. Do Mike and his crew win the stripper contest? It's never discussed. Is the convention they travel to actually a contest? Mike's crew envy of the success of the other group of strippers who perform the Twilight routine might imply that it is. But besides that very dim implication, nothing else would lead us to believe that their goal is to win rather than simply to enjoy performing. To be to be the best male entertainers they can be magic mike is a decidedly anti-capitalist story it doesn't want to gain anything but joy and has no interest in the upward progression of a narrative any more than it is interested in the approval of dads so we'll get more (laughs) into the idea of (laughs) we'll get more into the idea of labor and capitalism and so on later on but this is where it gets very interesting for me like i complained about earlier so many discussions of the hero's journey and how it appears in media begin and end with how it fits into the structure um, Fitzgerald acknowledges the structure and that Magic Mike XXL fits into it. But the interesting part is not that it does, but what it is doing with that structure. Um, she argues that while it fits the narrative, it refuses the tendency of monomyth stories to reinforce male supremacy and individualism. That's such a wild thing to say when you're like, outside of what we know now, if you were to say that to someone about Magic Mike XXL, they'll be like, oh. What? <laughs> That's the thing is like, it's so hard to explain to people that this is a movie. Like, Mary asked me while, like, right after we finished the movie, do you think this is a feminist film? Because that's a funny question to ask me because it always gets my hackles up. Um, and I said, no, I don't think it is a, fe- I don't think anything is a feminist film. <laughs> or at least it would be very, very difficult to, to, to convince me that anything is a feminist film. But I don't think it's a feminist film, but I do think this is a film that is, that resists patriarchy. Like, I, that is what I believe. And I think they're really clear about it. Yes. Yeah. They're, this is they're a, very clear. This is a film to me that resists patriarchy. And it's impressive. It's written by a man. This is one of those things where I'm just like, I, so I read, I didn't finish it and it didn't end up coming up in, in the outline as much as um, I expected it to. But there's a book called The Will to Change by Bell Hooks, which is about masculinity and men and uh, how horrible the patriarchy is for men too. Um, if you told me that the writer of this movie had read The Will to Change, I would be like, well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so wild. Um, oh, so you expect, you know, if you're sitting down to watch Magic Mike XXL and you don't know anything about it, you you would expect this to be a story about a bunch of a bunch of men dancing, having sex and winning a stripper contest. They do dance, um, but not necessarily for the means of receiving sex. Right. It does happen. I think two characters have sex in the movie, specifically Big Dick Richie and uh, who I will never <laughs> Big Dick Richie forever. Uh, and um, I want to say Tito have sex. 
if I remember correctly. Not with each other. Not with they each other. They kind of made it sound like they No, have. no. They don't have sex with each other. Um, that we know of. Yeah. Uh, they do dance, but again, not necessarily for the means of receiving sex. Sex does happen a couple of times, but it is not the end goal. And as Fitzgerald points out, the goals of the convention are unclear. There's no winner because as Rome says during during the convention, it's not a competition. But like, do the guys get to keep the money? Why were they there other than to bring joy to the attendees? I think so. I, I, I We had kind of alluded to that when we were watching it of like, we don't know what this is. And as I was watching it, thinking about it, it kind of seems like if, if I was forced at gunpoint to make, to make a, a, an argument. <laughs> and I'm going to do that. Yeah, I know. That's what usually happens here. Um, it seems as though it, it kind of felt like a strip club. Yeah. Right? But in a way that is, I felt... In strip clubs, women pay typically when women who are there, which is usually what it is, pay to be on stage. Mm -hmm. This kind of felt like women running a much more fun strip club where the men pay to be there and they equally both get the money. And but the thing is, I don't know if they had to pay. They don't to be pay. There. But you're right. They don't pay. They 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 get they split. I think they split part of the money. If I had to make it, because yeah. But it feels like a play on a strip club that's just more ethical. What if it like what? The, here's a here's a funny. There's a big thing in the first movie about equity, okay. specifically with Matthew McConaughey going E Q U I C <laughs> to uh to Channing Tatum who does like the books for the for the club that mm-hmm. Dallas runs. Um, the first movie is about equity essentially not existing. Mm-hmm. This movie feels a lot like what if it did though? Yeah, like it was a strip club, mm-hmm. like it was right, and there. Had, they didn't have to pay. I think you're right. They didn't have to pay to be there, but they did have to sign up. There was yeah. a sort of like I do and there this. was a gatekeeper. Yeah, there was a gatekeeper, and then they went and they were did a strip tease for women in a. But it was such a different vibe. It kind of just felt like just turning it on its head, which I think it, this movie does with a lot of things. So it made perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it's. Just- it's interesting. It doesn't give us a motivation there, which I think kind of plays into that idea. Like, I think anti-cap- calling it anti-capitalist is maybe a little more generous than I would be. Mm. But there is there is that element of like resisting the resisting the assumed inherentness of capitalism. There's like, but what if it wasn't? You know, it kind of feels like, oh, no, well, not it. The fact that we don't have an answer as to what they are doing at this convention is more interesting to me, actually, than if they had just said, it's not a competition. It's about equity. It's, you know? Yeah, because the money is staying in the pockets of not... The only business we really see is Rome's, and that's totally different situation. Yeah. Where's the money? Who, who's who's benefit? I was going to say, like, Robin Hood, but he's not stealing anything. Yeah. Um, but, like, the keeping the money within the people and not the corporations. Yeah. Not these strip clubs that are predatory. Yeah. It's genuinely really interesting. And it's not built on logic, which I don't think is a bad thing. I bet you love that. I do. <laughs> Knowing um, you, I bet you love that. The the point of the scene, like that final dance, 
like 20 minute dance scene. So good. Uh, it's not domination, uh, which is a theme that Bell Hooks explores in The Will to Change as one of the primary features patriarchy associates with men. The theme of that scene or the point of that scene is not domination. Like it, the point is not to win. The point is not to convert. The point is not to gain as much money as possible. It's rather the freeing experience of dancing and giving joy specifically as themselves because their personas radically shift from what what Dallas put upon them. They're all embodying their ideal selves in those performances except maybe Channing Tatum's <laughs> mic. We'll talk about that a little later. But um like uh Big Dick Richie is like I'm a husband yeah. and also I like to fuck yeah, it's so good. Uh, Tito's there with his ice cream truck. Tarzan's it. just being an artist. That's my favorite one. It's that lovely. That was my favorite one. It's lovely. Um, this is another quote. Uh, this one is from Magic Mike XXL's perfectly sculpted gay pandering by J. Brandon Louder, uh, who writes, and then, of course, there's the sense in which the entertaining Mike and the others are doing is really just drag of another gender. The roles and scenarios the guys use as their framing devices, both the old firemen slash military routines and the new ones they debut in Myrtle Beach, are drag that eroticizes, exaggerates, and sends up traditional masculinity. Just as drag queens are playing with our ideas of the feminine rather than making fun of real women, male strippers similarly toy with the masculine. When you think about it, the two really are a perfect fit. So Magic Mike XXL is very clearly a movie about appealing to women, right? Mm -hmm. I And I, I say that deliberately, you know, despite because despite the focus on women, it does leave space for queer desire as well by making itself an inclusive space. I would argue that this is sometimes clumsily done, but there's an effort there that I nonetheless appreciate. Yeah. Early in the film, the guys attend a drag show at a bar and end up participating in a voguing competition and later hang out with the queens at a beach party. It was really good because I, I sat there expecting them to be really fucking good and they were average. Yeah. <laughs> they were average compared Channing to the Channing Tatum's other really good. Yeah. But like compared <laughs> to the other drag queens and stuff that were there, I was ready for them to be like really... F I was like, oh no, they're... They're average and straight. Yeah, you can tell this isn't their... They're just having fucking fun. They're just fun. having fun. Um, so both drag and voguing come from black queer communities, and their inclusion in the film connects the Kings of Tampa to the larger world of sex-positive dance in their community, and it makes it clear that while the Kings themselves may emphasize female pleasure and desire, they are not homophobic, which is important, right? Yeah. It's good to know that. <laughs> it is very good to know that. Um, queer male desire is welcomed, if not celebrated to the same degree as female desire is celebrated in this film. It would have been nice to see some non-women at the end yeah, in yeah. the crowd. Well, the thing is, I think that they were very, very intentionally targeting female desire in this film. I think that that yeah. was an intentional choice. Interesting. Like, I, I really believe that this, that that choice was intentional. And that, well, that would make sense too of like the, the crowd that was there. They were not actors. No. Like some of them like were like you could tell they were having to do specific things they were yeah. told to do because they're not. And it looked weird because they weren't actors. Right. They were real people. They were they were women. Mm -hmm. um, and it allowed you <clears throat> to put yourself in their shoes. There are women of all sizes. And the and the the bigger women didn't stay in the crowd. No. That, they were that for me was important. They were celebrated to an equal degree. And like one of the essays I read talked about the fact that you can see them wearing shapewear. And that kind of thing, and still being objects of desire mm -hmm. in in the movie, and like the way that he dances for the woman in the gas station, mm -hmm. like the whole time, I really thought a lot about that because she's not like a conventionally beautiful woman, but it wasn't like it wasn't 
funny because he was doing to her. It was funny because her lack of reaction. Her lack of reaction was funny and he was desperate. Death, like the idea of him being desperate for her approval for and her not, smile. Yeah. And not like, you didn't like this. Well, fuck you. Yeah. Like that desperation worked. His only goal in that scene was to make her smile. And when he achieves it, he's satisfied. Yeah. He doesn't need anything more from yeah. that interaction. It's great. Um, so the actual reason that I put this quote here is to emphasize that this movie is about many things. And one of them is the shedding of the inauthentic personas of the king that the Kings of Tampa used uh, when they were at Dallas's club. Um, instead of firemen and Navy guys, they become artists, husbands and Froyo guys. Uh, Mike's performance is a bit less clear, but maybe that's because Mike wasn't on this journey for self-discovery. He was the only one of them who didn't perform entirely in a persona after all in in Magic Mike, the first one. They had too cool of a concept. They're like, you gotta do this one. Yeah, well, and it's, I mean, I'm sure if you really wanted to, you could dive into the fact that he's using a fake mirror and, like, there, like I'm sure there's something there, but there, this the outline was getting very long, so <laughs> I didn't dive it's too much into It's not the most it. interesting part. No, it's, no, it's not the most interesting part. Uh, and the roles that they took on are a kind of drag, um, as Louder points out. They're hypermasculine roles expected to appeal to a really broad idea of what women are attracted to, regardless of the individuals involved. But the performance they do at the XXL is also a kind of drag. It's over-the-top performance art where they dress and act as exaggerated versions of whatever it is that they're trying to portray much as when we talk about judith butler's idea of gender as performance that doesn't make the persona they inhabit not real the performances they do certainly line up better with what we know of these characters um it just acknowledges it as performance and as something constructed sometimes the performance is more real or true than the way they're seen richie is probably a good example of this because most people don't see a male entertainer as quote-unquote husband material but that's how he sees himself and that's who he wants to be and that's his material to me Truly, truly. I'm not usually into like big buff dudes, but he me either. It. But also, I also have the knowledge that he's a huge fucking nerd. He is a huge so, fucking like, nerd. So, like, he will get like when he's, I don't know what set he was on. He got all the actors to come and play D&D with him. Yeah. That's like, you just go up a few levels. Yeah, it's not the sure. D&D. It's just the extreme nerdiness. Yeah. Um, this is another quote from Magic Mike XXL is basically the Odyssey, but with butts by Helena Fitzgerald. <laughs> Ultimately, Magic Mike isn't a hero's journey because it doesn't believe in heroes. It believes in sexy dancing and joy. Nothing is achieved because the story is not trying to teach us anything. Women are people rather than objects to be won or evils to be defeated. Oppressive morality is completely absent, as are authority figures. Instead of heroes, sexy dancing. Instead of dads, (laughs) sexy dancing. Instead of telling the story of why the king is the king, sexy dancing. (laughs) While most people would acknowledge that Campbell's idea of the hero is outdated and ossified, it hangs around persistently in our culture because it is a story men can tell themselves about why things should stay the same and why the people in power should remain in power. Magic Mike offers the opposite, an unfamiliar story that hints at a better world. I've never really... I know we've talked a lot about like the hero's journey a lot pertaining to... Um, Star Wars and stuff, but going through this one made me really truly understand yeah. the hero's journey because I think like knowing how it really did differently and how that hero's journey, like this part of like pe- men pers- specifically like this because it just reinforces the roles they want to play. Right. That makes sense to me, mm-hmm. especially why people are so fucking vicious over Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. And get so pissed off like how Luke was in The Last Jedi. They're so angry. And mm-hmm. like if you bring this into it, you're like, oh yeah, of course you are. Yeah. 
So essentially, Fitzgerald argues here that while Magic Mike XXL does follow the path of the hero's journey as a structure, it has little at all to do with the themes of the hero's journey. There is no larger goal for the characters than what is presented to us. This is not an allegorical hero story. This is a story specifically about these people doing exactly what they are depicted doing on screen. And while that itself is not a radical storytelling decision, it is an interesting and defiant choice to present a story about male entertainers choosing to spread joy by being themselves rather than by enacting some sort of rule or reinstating some sort of power. As she points out, this is not a story of why things should stay the same. At its core, it's a story of change. Uh, Coming off of the first movie, we expect Mike to have left dancing behind him, to have cut ties with the rest of the dancers, and to be happy in his new life. But he's not, or he's not entirely, and the movie doesn't settle that question for us. I think it lets him resolve the tension of the last film, not just with the other dancers, but with the tension about dancing, specifically. The first movie had a real, like, downer approach to the experience of being a stripper. None of them were happy, they were dealing with the stigma, etc., uh, the second I think that's how a lot of people just treat strippers in general. That's the thing, and that's why, like, I like I liked the first movie, and I found it very interesting as like you know a, a film thinking about capitalism, but like, and like that specifically applies to like sex work and exotic dancing and that kind of thing. But the movie ultimately to me felt down on those things yeah. rather than being more um, like actually it's possible. To enjoy what you do, which is what Magic Mike XXL added to the context of the first one to me. Um, So the second movie, which is by the same writer, asks, what if they were happy, though? (laughs) What if there wasn't a stigma? And by asking those questions, it encourages us to imagine a world where those things are true. What makes the use of the hero's journey interesting here is that it's not using the story to reinforce the existing structure of the world. Though it's not without flaws, which we'll talk about more later, it's more diverse and more joyful than the previous film, and it challenges viewers to enter this world and see that it's not much different from ours. Like this place that they inhabit in this movie where dancing is not exploitative, where... um you can take joy in your work where providing pleasure is not emasculating. These are, these are things that are just, you know, slightly askew from our reality. And the movie challenges, challenges us to be like, Oh, actually it's not that far away. Um, the hero's journey in this sense is about reimagining the world, not reinforcing it, which I find really compelling. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about that? No, it was all very interesting. And I think that going through this really helped me, despite us having a huge conversation about it with like Star Wars and everything on and off this podcast, this this is what made me really understand it. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about gaze and visual pleasure. Um, So the time has come (laughs) to talk about Laura Mulvey. Uh, you have no doubt heard the phrase male gaze both here on this podcast and elsewhere in the world. It's maybe one of the most misused pieces of theory out there. Uh, I have misused it myself. None of us are perfect. Uh, but because this movie features a lot of glamour shots of beefcake dudes, it feels necessary to talk about whether Magic Mike XXL can be said to include the female gaze, because that is something that is levied a lot at this movie, and I want to interrogate. Is is it true? Is it possible? This is your version of is it feminist? Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about visual pleasure and narrative cinema, which is by Laura Mulvey. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's not super long if you want to read it and kind of familiarize yourself with the, the origins of the term. Um, Mulvey wrote visual pleasure and narrative cinema in 1973, and it became a key piece of film theory for how to explain the pleasure of looking and being looked at. 
uh, and how that sense of pleasure tended to, for a variety of reasons, result from identification with a male character and objectification of a female character. She called that sense of pleasure, the pleasure of looking at and being looked at, she calls that scopophilia after a concept from Freud and suggests that female characters in the films she analyzed, which were largely from the 50s and 60s, had a sense of, quote, to be looked atness, where male characters were, quote, bearers of the look. Does that make sense so far? That makes sense to me. Okay. It's like being objectified and, and yeah. being the one objecting. Yeah, it's it's women were constructed in this era of films with a quality she identified as to be looked atness. It didn't matter what the agency of the character within the story was. They were created with the quality of to be looked atness. One's being bought and one's doing the buying. Yeah. And and to men crude. and male characters were bearers of the look. They did the looking women characters were looked at. Um, Mulvey's essay has a number of limitations, including an emphasis on the gender binary and heterosexuality, a lack of an- analysis from a racial perspective, and so on. But it's nevertheless an important piece of film history. She acknowledges many of these shortcomings in a follow-up essay, but that essay is not as popular mm-hmm. visual as visual pleasure in narrative cinema. And we're still talking about the male gaze as she defined it in the original today. So that is what we're going to talk about. Do you think that pisses her off? Almost certainly. <laughs> Um, So this is a quote from Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema by Laura Mulvey. In a world ordered by sexual imbalance, pleasure in looking has been split between active male and passive female. The determining male gaze projects its fantasy onto the female figure, which is styled accordingly. In their traditional exhibitionist role, women are simultaneously looked at and displayed with their appearance coded for strong visual and erotic impact so that they can be said to connote to be looked atness. Women displayed as sexual object is the leitmotif of erotic spectacle from pinups to striptease, from Ziegfeld to Busby Berkeley. She holds the look, plays to, and signifies male desire. So Mulvey suggests a few things about visual art here. One, the world has a sexual imbalance, i.e. power is not distributed evenly among people of different genders. Two, pleasure in looking in cinema is largely active slash male and passive slash female, i.e. men look, women are looked at. And three, the male gaze, because the male does the gazing as he is the active participant. Um, the male gaze shapes the way female, the female character is designed or displayed because the point of her is to be looked at, hence the quality of to be looked atness. Whatever else may happen in a story, she is looked at first, and that has been a quality of art for a very long time. She is the recipient of the, of the gaze, and the way she is constructed reflects male desire before all else. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it really clear on how people use the male gaze wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> makes it really clear. That's why I wanted to talk about it uh, because yeah, it's yeah. and I do it too. Like that's the thing is like it's a it's a really easy quick easy. Much like things like emotional labor, it's a term that had a meaning that has been distilled through like pop feminism and like it's good to have specific terms and it's good to have terms that explain concepts, but these concepts do get watered down by like incorrect use and they start to lose their meaning. Um, and that's why I wanted to talk specifically about the male gaze so that when we do have these conversations, we're using male gaze in a more appropriate way because male gaze is not just hot woman, right? Like that's different. Not and not just like hot women who are clearly created for a man of like um, the the excuse the the what's coming to my mind is the way that women are treated in um, Harley Quinn movie mm. as opposed to the Suicide Squad yeah. movie yeah there's there's a difference in framing and quality there you know 
Um, so this is another quote from the same essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema by Laura Mulvey. Uh, According to the principles of the ruling ideology and the psychical structures that back it up, the male figure cannot bear the burden of sexual objectification. Man is reluctant to gaze at his exhibitionist like. Hence the split between spectacle and narrative supports the man's role as the active one of forward. Sorry. Hence the split between spectacle and narrative supports the man's role as the active one of forwarding the story, making things happen. The man controls the film fantasy and also emerges as the representative of power in a further sense as the bearer of the look of the spectator, transferring it behind the screen to neutralize the extra diegetic tendencies represented by woman as spectacle. I have a question. Yes. And I don't mean this. I want to be really clear in that I am sex positive and I think strippers are great. Would a strip club be a really good example of a male gaze? Yeah. I think that, well, on its surface, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, on its surface. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I think on its surface, it's c- because the women have the quality of to be looked atness and the men are the active participants. But then it gets a little thorny because, like, they're, w- the women in a strip club are real women. Yeah. Like, they are not. It gets complicated too because of, you know, the pressures of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And when you don't think about it too hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that it's hard to apply male gaze as a concept to anything outside of fiction mm. because it's constructed. And yeah. that's part of the point of it. So if, you know, if you, if a man sees a beautiful woman in public and he looks at her, that's not male gaze. Right? That's, yeah. But, yeah, it gets it gets complicated. And it also gets thorny when you think about queer desire, mm-hmm. right? This is something that sometimes gets levied against women who are attracted to women. Like, like if I find mm. so for example, the one of I think the best examples of the male gaze in like more modern cinema is that one scene in Star Trek where the character is just in her bra and underwear for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> um and uh kirk is just looking at her and they're having a whole a whole conversation while she's like not fully dressed why that's happening is there's no reason it's it's uh, it's there to be looked at right she has mm-hmm. the quality of to be looked at ness now this gets weaponized against queer attracted women to be like because it's like oh well it's gross the male gaze is gross therefore if you look at her and you enjoy her if you've experienced scopophilia the pleasure of looking at her you are therefore gross because Mm -hmm. you're using the male gaze that's not how it works that's one of the reasons that we should be specific and purposeful in how we use the male gaze so is is the is the reason it doesn't work is because the context behind being a a man in in this in this culture and the power that they hold yeah like if i'm a woman looking at a beautiful woman in a film am i male gazing i don't think so i don't think so because there's more to it than just that yeah Yeah. and that's one of the things that's missing from mulvey's essay is the the acknowledgement of queer desire Mm -hmm. um so that's one of its limitations but i think that's also a reason to be specific and purposeful in how we use male gaze um, so in this quote, Mulvey explains why the gaze is quote unquote male. The quote ruling ideology, unquote, she mentions includes patriarchy. And she uses that to argue that the male figure cannot bear being sexually objectified. If power rests in maleness in our society, objectifying a man is to rob him of his power. The films mm. Mulvey is talking about assume that assume a male viewer and Mulvey suggests that male that the male viewer is made uncomfortable by gazing upon a quote exhibitionist like unquote or a man constructed with to be looked atness the way that women are constructed. Does that make sense so far? Because I realize I'm using some academic terminology. So like it 
Kind of. So the men are like, fuck, no, I'm not going to be objectified, essentially. Yeah. So if a man is looking at a movie in which a male character is created with to be looked atness, mm-hmm. that quality that women are typically ascribed, the male viewer will reject it mm-hmm. because that takes away his power. I see. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, to say an exhibitionist like is essentially like referring to this person is like me. Mm-hmm. Exhibitionist referring to, you know, like sexually show offy. So if a man, if a man in an audience is confronted with a sexually show offy man, they will reject it. They'll get all weirded out. They will get weird about it. Uh, <laughs> a man in a film may be beautiful, but he is not constructed to be looked at the way a woman is. Further, this makes men active participants in films and the character with whom the male uh, the male audience is meant to identify. They are active, they are representative of power, and they wield the gaze as part of the control of a situation. Women are spectacle, meant to be seen and witnessed, but not as active participants the way that men are. All on board? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Context matters is the answer. (laughs) Yeah. Thus, the male gaze is not just how a man may see a woman, but also the attributes that make up the woman. That she's generally passive in a story sense. Things happen to, not because of her. She is there to be looked at. And the male audience is not meant to identify with her. Men are active in the male gaze. Women are passive. And I think that's a really important part. Yeah. So if we were to have a female gaze, it would need a woman as the active subject, man as passive. But even if that were the case, we'd kind of need to imagine it outside of a patriarchal world, Mm. which is why I'm not sure it is fully possible to have a female gaze. Um, It is more complex than just who is attractive to whom. Because it would have to mean that the man has lack of power, right? Yeah, almost like... Like culturally. Yeah, because... Like the quality of to be looked atness, like yes, you could have a man lack power in a story, but you like you still need the idea that like that's good or natural, and that mm. I think is what is missing. I think to have an equal gaze, I think would is totally possible. Female gaze is a little iffy to me. I don't have any example of it because this is really hard to Google because of the way that <laughs> yeah. the terms have been watered down. So a real example or what, what you're arguing is a real example of the female gaze would be uh, essentially a, such a culture in which it's different than ours in that where men don't hold the power and women do. Yes, where it's not equal, essentially under a matriarchy. Which makes sense when you're talking about the scene where he goes to Rome's. yeah. I'm trying to think of any like think of anything. I th- I don't see if I'm looking purely at this text, I don't think it's possible. Mhm. Or at least no film that I have ever seen represents comes from a matriarchal culture that can I think this. it's hard because we just don't have that. Yeah. Like it's hard like and if we did it's been stomped out. Right. Um so yeah, it's a utopia in that it can't be achieved, I guess you could say. Yeah, like the the certainly I think there are examples of like a more equal gaze. But that doesn't, that is not a female gaze. Um, hmm. so naturally that leads us to the real question. Does Magic Mike XXL allow for the possibility of a female gaze? Now we kind of spoiled that conversation, but, <laughs> but we're going to have it anyway. Too bad. Too bad. Is it going to surprise anybody if I say no? <laughs> that I don't think Magic Mike allows for the possibility of a female gaze. I think things are not as black and white as they were in 1973 with regard to Scopophilia. But while the men of Magic Mike XXL are certainly be- beautiful and do have a sense of to be looked atness, 
it's them that we're meant to identify with, right? Yeah. Being very general mm. here, because I think the film is very general. Female audiences may see themselves as Zoe or the largely female crowd of Domina or the convention or even the older divorcees at the mansion. But the actors in this film, the one who do the acting, are men. The ones who make the plot happen are men. Something like 96... And this is not an exaggeration. This is like a true statistic that I forgot to source, but I mm. saw it multiple times. Something like 96% of the theatrical audience for this film was women. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, while that implies a whole lot of women gazing, the fact that the male body is on display, but men were not willing to see it suggests that we have not moved all that far away from male audiences oh. refusing to see an exhibitionist like. So if men were to have gone and see this, would that equate to like the equal gaze then? I think so. Yeah. But I think that men are not likely to see, like straight men specifically, are not likely to see this movie because of the exhibitionist-like thing. It tells us that we haven't moved beyond patriarchy, which we know, but it it doesn't suggest... I think men might be surprised, straight men might be surprised by this movie, like mm -hmm. how it makes them feel as actors. I think they are afraid that they will see their exhibitionist-like in this movie. I think, though, that it does come pretty close in, in getting there with specifically the scene at Rome's. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Um, and at first glance, that sounds like it should be reinforcing the idea that Magic Mike XXL features a female gaze, as it would therefore be unappealing to men. But again, this is a movie about male action. Men dance, men bring joy to women, men make women smile. Women within the film look at men, women outside of the film look at men. But the power in the film still resides directly in the men. And speaking outside of the film, the people who made this movie are men. The director, mm -hmm. writer, and cinematographer are all men. It is, in fact, their gaze that we are witnessing in the That's film. That's, for me, where it's, like, the biggest of, like, you can't, like, reading what we have, like, listening to what we had just talked about and, like, knowing what I know, the fact that it's created by men makes it, for me personally, impossible. Yeah, we are literally looking at their gaze, right? It is, it is not impossible, I think, for them to create a more, um, equitable gaze. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think the movie quite gets there. The female characters are largely incidental. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a quote from Go Grown Woman Shit, a case for Magic Mike XXL is cult text by Amanda Ann Klein, who writes, in her interviews with an analysis of Twilight fans, Ananya Mukherjee notes that the franchise's appeal was largely tied to the way both the books and the film center the bodies of men as objects of the audience's gaze. This is a quote. The joy of scopophilia, the love of looking, have historically been the privilege of men, unquote. Historically non-white, non-male, non-heterosexual audiences have been forced to take up the point of view of a white male heterosexual protagonist mm -hmm. as laura mulvey notes women are the quote bearers of meaning not the makers of meaning unquote in hollywood cinema but in magic mike xxl this to be looked atness becomes the domain of only male bodies every naked body we see is male women remain for the most part covered and always placed in the role of the active bearer of the look and even when female bodies vie for objectification they are denied likewise magic mike xxl encourages as active encourages an active spectator a spectator whose activity is purposefully coded with coded as both heterosexual and female so it's very interesting to consider this because while i don't think that we can say that magic mike xxl exhibits anything i'd refer to as the female gaze because the film is largely about men and from the male characters perspectives it is interesting that i don't know that it fully embraces the male gaze either I have I have a wrench, not a wrench, but I have a question for devil, Devil's Advocate. Kind of going back, I was of uh, what you were saying of like the men still have power. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe this, but I, I'd like 
what about the power and like they have to rely on Rome to get things or the power that they cannot get into the convention without these women agreeing to allow them in? Is that not them having their power? I think it is them having their power, but they still wield like it within the context of the story. They are the actors. I I think I think the movie is trying to approach some level of equity, which is, again, very funny in the context of the first film. Mm -hmm. I think it's striving for equity. I don't think it quite gets there. Um, But I would I would argue that that is what it's going for. Okay. Um, And like I said, I I think it is interesting that I don't think that the film embraces the male gaze. I don't think it's female gaze. But I don't think it embraces the male gaze. Do you think it thinks it's the female gaze? I think it might. Okay. I think it might. Um, because what are the men meant to be gazing at, right? The male gaze presupposes heterosexuality. So maybe it could be said that it embraces the queer male gaze. But if so, why so little queer desire? Um, I think there's actually something really interesting going on here. To me, this movie is largely about pleasure, both giving and receiving it. I don't think there is a male or a female gaze here, or if there is, it's less about objectification than you would expect. I think we're meant to be able to see ourselves in either the male characters or the female characters, but while the men's bodies are clearly on display more than the women's bodies, I don't think that automatically means the movie uses the female gaze. It's very interesting. Yeah. I think for me, the fact that it's made by men makes it impossible. Yeah. Because, because we or don't live in a vacuum. straight men, at least. Yeah. Presumably yeah. straight men. We don't live in a vacuum. Right. All art is political, right? So yeah. it's created by people who... It's not women. They're not women. Yeah. At least that we know. Yeah. Uh, any more thoughts on gays? No, it's really interesting. I feel like we just went through two things that people can easily throw out at, at this movie and we're kind of like, actually, wrong. <laughs> and that's why it's good. That's yeah. what makes it a good movie to me is because if this movie just followed the hero's journey and, did, and decided like, this is how you tell a good story, it would be boring. Yeah. If the movie was just like, I'm for the female gays, it would be boring. Right? Like the fact that it, it, you could argue that it does those things, but it actually doesn't succeed at them, whether intentionally or no, I think makes it a way more fascinating movie than if it was just, what if the hero's journey, but sexy? <laughs> like, I think it like tricked you in that. It's like, yeah, you think, right? That's what you and think you're coming to, right? That's the thing is when, when I tell people this is a good movie, there's always a little bit of laughter because it's like you have the expectation based on, what the movie is and how the movie is advertised about what it is, but it's actually a whole lot more interesting than that. Hmm. It is literally a movie about hot dudes. It's a hot dude road trip where they hype each other up and go to a stripper convention, which doesn't lead you to believe that it's going to be anything of substance. Yeah. But it is in fact, there's, there's substance there. Yeah, it is. Um, so let's talk about pleasure. Let's do it. Um, I think that it is a mistake to say that magic Mike XXL is about sex. Uh, it is certainly about sex, but I think it's more accurately about pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pleasure of receiving and the pleasure of being uh, and the pleasure of giving. Throughout the film, we see the main characters celebrating one another and also bringing joy to other people. While you have characters like Mike trying to help Zoe, you know, get her smile back. The story is also about Mike getting his smile back, right? It's not just about Zoe. It's about Mike, too. Um, he left dancing on bad terms. He's no longer with Brooke and he's struggling to be the boss he wants to be by bringing pleasure, joy and desire to others. Mike also brings those things to himself. Um, the scene in the convenience store is as much about the cashier receiving the attention of a beautiful man as it is about Richie shedding the confines of his persona and providing pleasure to her. The scene with the married women in the mansion is as much about listening and being listened to and treasured in a fragile state of life as it is like the strip teasing and the singing, right? Mm -hmm. It is like, yes, it's about 
the sexy, the the feeling of being the object of desire for a sexy man. It's about that. But it's also about the fact that, um, what's Ken, the fact that Matt Bomer's character, Ken, um, hears the woman say he used to sing this song to me Mm -hmm. and then he sings it to her and she feels again not love but the the feeling of being desired in a state of life when she doesn't feel that anymore and she wants yeah she wants dead yeah and she she it's not that she needs a whole new man in her life she wants to feel desired by the man that she's currently with ken provides her the the feeling that she's not getting from her husband um I highly, 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 highly recommend reading the essay Uses of the Erotic by Odra Lord, um, which I will link in the show notes. The thing with this essay is that it's too good and I couldn't quote the whole thing. <laughs> um, it is a great essay that focuses on the necessity of pleasure. A lot of is it about a lot of it is about sexual pleasure, but also just pleasure more generally. Um, patriarchy suggests that men need pleasure in a way that women do not, and Lord suggests that that is one way in which women are oppressed, right? Society centers male pleasure and female pleasure comes secondary in everything. I cannot tell you how I keep getting those like, am I the assholes on TikTok and how many of them are, and I've seen before this too, are men complaining they're not getting sex in their marriage and saying, well, then it should be okay that I find it somewhere else. No. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can't tell you how many and there are people who legitimately like men have needs Mm -hmm. as if the women didn't did you ever think about life happening (laughs) women have no needs oh my god Um, it it dry like it hurts my heart yeah uh lord also suggests that pleasure slash the erotic is derived from true feeling so pornography is not a substitute for it I find this really interesting in the in the context of Magic Mike XXL, which could easily fall toward the pornography side. Be- but because so much of it is based on the characters becoming their true selves as opposed to the caricatures that they were embodying in the first film, I think it manages to end up on the true feeling side rather than the pornographic side. Well, think about when Dick Ritchie finally has sex with his Cinderella. Like, he uh-huh. finds the fit. It's not that he had sex. It's that, it's he, that he found someone that fits. Yeah. And like, like in the, in the most true physical sense, but also the person who saw his big dick and didn't go, oh, <laughs> not for me. She saw that and said, let's go for me. Let's go. <laughs> so, and like the, like the joy around it had nothing to do with the sexual act. Right. Because we don't see the sexual no. act. It's not for our consumption. No. Rick, uh, Richie is validated in that moment just as much as the woman that he has sex with is. Like he's sad that he hadn't been having sex because it hurt his ego. Yeah. And because, well, like he isn't able to derive pleasure from other people because they are literally not attracted to his, his penis. Like yeah. they, they're or like terrified. Yeah. They're not about it. Um, like valid though. Yeah. It's just sometimes scary. Yeah. Um, Uh, I think this movie manages to end up on the true feeling side, which is different from a real life experience of pleasure. But it's interesting to me how neatly it fits into what Lord argues in this essay. Uh, Lord goes on to say, and this is a quote, for the erotic is not a question only of what we do. It is a question of how acutely and fully we can feel in the doing. Once we know the extent to which we are capable of feeling that sense of satisfaction and completion, we can then observe which of our various life endeavors bring us closest to that fullness, unquote. So in essence, it's not until we experience true pleasure with true feelings that we can become aware of what parts of our life are not lived with pleasure. Once we know that, we can make our lives better. And as we'll discuss a little later, Magic Mike XXL's portrayal of this sort of post-race, post-age utopia is flawed, but sometimes we need to see the possibility through pleasure to realize what we're missing out on 
Um, this essay is really good and worth reading, but there's already a lot of sources here. So we're just going to stick with that for now. Just trust me that it reinforces everything I'm about to argue. Do you think this is one of the um, most fruitful topics that we've had of like writings and philosophical and academia stuff? I find, I mean, maybe in terms of like pure number, no, but there were a lot of fucking essays on this movie, like a lot of them. And uh, like the... I read Pleasure Activism last year mm-hmm. and it was like this essay uses of the erotic was like really, really informational and like helped me shape my feelings about this movie because it talks. So the movie, as we've di- we've discussed a little bit, the movie is largely about, excuse me, largely about female pleasure. And that is a revolutionary thing because again, female pleasure is really um, de-emphasized in our culture, but in de-emphasizing female pleasure, we are de-emphasizing women's needs. Mm-hmm. And Laura discusses in this essay, if we acknowledge and um, cultivate female pleasure, we are actually creating a better society. Um, and that's what this movie is doing. Like the scene in Domina is a really, a really, really powerful scene because you have um, a scene of almost entirely or almost entirely black women being... Like, they're paying to be there. It's like a subscription service. What they're really paying for is to be validated and to be worshipped and to have their desires fulfilled. And, like, in the way that they choose, because there's different ways. There's different rooms with different purposes. Like really interesting. Yeah. This this movie, to me, it like, if you told me that the creators of this movie read The Will to Change by (laughs) Bell Hooks and Uses of the Erotic by by Odra Lord, I would be like, yeah, I believe that. Like, I believe that those two texts went into the shaping of this movie. Um, so this is another quote here from Grown Woman Shit, A Case for Magic Mike XXL is cult text by Amanda Ann Klein. Brief shout out here. The, the essay titles are spectacular. Essays on Magic Mike XXL. So good. Uh, so this is the quote. Through its clever use of bricolage and non-choreography, Mike's pony reprise also demonstrates that the best stripper performance is one that is natural, spontaneous, and real, rather than calculated. We need to believe that Mike simulates sex with a drill and wooden table because because music fills his body with sexual energy that can only be exercised through dance, specifically dance performed before the female gaze. The structure of the musical works in this case to naturalize male performativity and the male as object. In this context, stripping is not a vocation, but a calling. So again, I don't really agree with the female gaze angle here, but that's okay. Within the context of the film, Mike is performing for himself. Obviously, we are watching the film and we know that's not true, right? We know we are watching a movie. Mm-hmm. Mike is not real. He's performing for us. Um, and we may or may not be female, but that, but he is the still, he's still the central character with agency. That said, I think the part of this that discusses Mike's performance being better because, because it is natural, spontaneous, and real is really true. Because Mike does not know that he has an audience, us, he is dancing for his own gratification and enjoyment, and as Klein writes, to exercise the desire to dance despite not having the outlet he use, he's used to to do it. It's an interesting scene that pokes a hole in the notion from the first film that he only dances for money, which actually makes the first film feel a lot better to me. Hmm. And it attempts to cater, successfully or no, to the female gaze. I would argue the attempt is especially interesting because Mike is dancing more self-consciously. There's an assuredness to the dance, but he looks vaguely embarrassed at the beginning of it, yeah, which definitely. I find endearing and humanizes him as being more than like just a dancing guy. Yeah. The sexiest routine in this movie is Mike dancing alone in his workshop. It's true. Like, 
by far to me. I don't find Channing Tatum to be particularly sexy. But, but I like him. As a person, like, I mean, I don't know that much about him as a person, but like, from what you do know, his public persona, I love it. And it's just really good. And that self-consciousness in that routine, in, in the routine that he does to Pony at the beginning of the film, by far the second, well, okay, Big Dick Richie's ca- uh, performance for the cashier is pretty good. <laughs> but there's vulnerability there, there's too. There's vulnerability there, too. He like, looks a little afraid. nervous. Yeah, he's yeah. a little afraid. That's why, like, I think that desperation is so important. Yeah. I mean, those routines are, to me, much sexier than the routines they do at the convention because there's real. there's a vulnerability to yeah. them. Um, this is a quote from Magic Mike XXL by Kate Renenbaum. Uh, the choreography, or shall we say mapping, of XXL's sequence as the boys move across the various thresholds to ever more spaces of wonder de- delineated by contrasting lighting schemes and sonic shifts exteriorizes the motif running through the film's logical narrative side. The acute difficulty of making someone smile and its constant valorizing of that goal, Magic Mike XXL defines its engine of joy, not as the voyeuristic spectacle of unclad bodies, but as the challenging but thrilling unpredictability of desire as opposed to sexual arousal. If you had told me um, to look up the dictionary, um, an academic writing about Magic Mike, it would be that. It was just like <laughs> all those words are just there's just a lot going on. There's a lot mm-hmm. of academic stuff. Yeah. So pleasure is obviously a key part of the equation that makes Magic Mike XXL work. But I think that Renenbaum, what that Renenbaum points to here is very true as well. It's not just pleasure, but the desire to feel pleasure, the permission to feel, not just the permission, the encouragement, the excitement to feel pleasure. Um, Like, sure, it can be great to see a hot person dancing around, but where the movie shines is not just the convention full of women seeing men dancing. It's also the unpredictability of desire at the convenience store. I, I, go ahead. Or, or the unpredictability of desire when Rome and, with Rome and Paris meeting up. Like, you don't expect them to get like, like, whoa, what's the history there? Or the unpredictability of desire when Zoe finds herself part of the show in the end, or the unpredictability of desire in Mike dancing alone in his workshop. I think for me, like, one of the things that is, like, this, like, when I think about, when I think, anyway, okay, how do I say this? There is a feeling of when you're going to see something like this, it is a show, but they won't really like you. Yeah. They don't really find you desirable. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the the Magic Mike really pushes against that. Whether I still believe it or not, I don't know. But, um, like, it's kind of like when people tell men like you go to the strip club you know she doesn't really like you she just likes your money mm-hmm. it's kind of that same feeling of like this man doesn't like me because of how i look he's just doing a performance and, and that seems inauthentic and i think this movie is pushing back against yeah. that not because it's not for money not because they actually feel desire for every woman with that they dance with but because the prioritization is not their desire it's the the power and freedom of giving pleasure to somebody else. Yeah. There is pleasure in just making somebody else feel good. Yeah. And I don't mean in a sexual sense. It can be in a sexual sense. But me, like, and I've talked about this before. If I'm having a really rough time, like a really rough time, one of the best ways to make myself feel better is to give compliments to other people. Hmm. Just genuinely. Like, just to be like, hey, you know, like I've done this on Twitter before. Like, just being like, I'm having a rough time. Show me something you're working on, and I'm going to tell you what I like about it. Yeah, that that makes me feel better. Giving pleasure to other people is a good act. Like it <laughs> feels good. Yeah, it's good for you. Um, 
there's joy in the dancing itself, in providing pleasure to others, in having pleasure provided to you, but also just in the mere feeling of desire and being desired when you didn't know that was something you could feel, right? Yeah. Like, there's the kind of shy woman at Domino's who gets sung to. Like, she doesn't seem to be into all the sexual stuff, but she loves... Ha- I mean, who wouldn't love having Domino's? <laughs> no, but like so hot. But... That appeals to her. Because it's intimate. It's intimate. And it's celebrating her specifically. Yeah. Um, there's different, like, she didn't know that that was something that she wanted until it was presented with her. And same with, like, the women attending Domino's. They don't know what they want necessarily. Some of them just want to see a hot man dancing for them, and that's fine. But, like, in this space, they're allowed to desire. And when you're allowed to desire, you're allowed to articulate your desire. And that's a skill that you can take beyond that very specific space. And, like, and like a safe space to do it because everybody else is wanting to do it as well. It's a space where female desire is normalized. Yeah. And that's not the average space. It's like super not. Yeah. <laughs> super, super not. Yeah. Like when I feel like when people are, um, when men specifically are like, oh, women love romance novels. It's similar of like, well, they get it. Like, mm-hmm. I, like this this enthusiastic of giving pleasure is here, mm-hmm. and you're not. Yeah. Um. So this is a quote from any god worth believing in sends you dudes and thongs when in need. <laughs> Exploring women's pleasure in Magic Mike XXL by Kristen Warner and Chelsea Bullock. Um. And what does it mean that when the smart and cynical young white woman Zoe Amber Heard, who more than likely stands for a significant portion of the film's audience, those girls dragged by friends to giggle at half naked men gyrating to genuine genuine's pony uh what is it this is me elaborating but what does it mean when she feels down in the dumps about her quote not so wise unquote life decisions that mike that all mike desires is to see her and maybe us get her slash our smile back and this is a footnote and not in some creepy patriarchal show me your smile show me a smile because you're pretty when you smile manner either xxl resists a patriarchal position because the desire for smiles is not about reciprocity or a centering of male pleasure and desire it's about taking pleasure whether mike or zoe in women's embrace of their own desires so is him saying that very specifically chosen because of men saying like i think so holy shit I think so. It has to be because that's like the number one, not number one, right? But it's an easy thing women mm-hmm. can tell people like, I hate it when men say this to me all the time. And then when I say no, they get mad at me. And that's not his response isn't anger. It's let me try. It's literally. So it's the difference between show me your smile. I deserve your smile. And let me make you smile. Yeah. Let me. Wow. That is providing pleasure. It is not demanding yeah. anything. He wants to make her smile. Yeah. Um, to build on the last quote, I think this film is very much about giving you, women in particular, but not only women, giving you the ability to want and to articulate and express that want without judgment. There's a lot of shame around female sexuality in particular. If you want too much too publicly, you're a slut. If you don't want enough, you're a prude. Zoe and likely many members of the audience have had the ability to want stamped out of them. Zoe had the audacity to want a career for herself. And when she was taken advantage of, it may have felt like a rejection, not just of her and her ability but of the fact that she acted on a want right like she had the audacity to want and now that that want has been denied to her now it feels like well maybe i shouldn't have wanted anything at all mike aims to help her get her smile back not because he wants to have sex with her he does not have sex with her even Mm -hmm. if he may want to but because bringing pleasure or joy to others can also bring joy to you and he needs that joy in the face of everything in his life that isn't going right 
Um, and as Warner and Bullock point out here, this isn't an attitude of reciprocity. Normally, I'm all about reciprocity, but because of patriarchy, there's an expectation that a man doing something for a woman should be rewarded with sex. Yeah. Magic Mike XXL resists that by not having Zoe and Mike sleep together or even kiss. There's not even any indication that his attempt to make her smile did anything more than exactly that, nor is there any indication that he's sad about that. He's ha- he, he seems he's generally seems, happy. Yeah, he seems happy. He's like, yeah, I did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I succeeded in now my Now I can go home and make furniture and feel good. Yep. Um, it's exactly what it looks like. He wants to make her smile, and he does, and that's the end of it. While this isn't itself a radical thing, it's an act of kindness, uh, it is interesting in terms of subverting our expectations, both in the real world and in the fictional one. As Helena Fitzgerald wrote in her article, it suggests a possible alternative to the world we live in and lets us imagine our own world difficult differently. Um, another another quote here from Grown Women Shit by Amanda Ann Klein. Uh, this cashier, in comparison with the men, is utterly plain. She could be anyone and no one, armed with a mission to please a woman, the mission that most motivates these men. Richie enters the store self-consciously, despite the fact that Richie is a big, muscular, and uncommonly handsome. The, d- the clerk ignores him. The Backstreet Boys' I Want It That Way begins to play in the store, a nostalgic nod to another mode of male-generated pop culture crafted for a female audience. Rather than shy away from the song, a quote-unquote bad text made for women, Richie embraces it, uh, slinking along the linoleum floor of the store, pouring bottled water over his bared muscular chest and simulating intercourse on the floor. Throughout the performance, his buddies watch from the parking lot, performing far more enthusiasm for his expertise than the bored cashier, who only begins to study Richie with an impassive gaze halfway through his routine. Here we see a man expose his body and perform sexuality expressly for the purposes of the female gaze, a gaze that is coded as bored and even hostile to the solicitation. Her eventual smile is Richie's reward for a job well done. Thus, in a reversal of many romantic comedies in which a man is dared by a pack of friends to go get a girl's phone number or, more insidiously, steal a kiss or cop a feel, here the prize is female pleasure itself. So this entire quote kind of hammers home what we're already talking about, but I really like the inclusion of the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. It's established earlier in the film that Richie likes the Backstreet Boys, and notably, nobody shames him for that. It's interesting, too, to think that though penis size is often considered equivalent to masculinity, Richie has some of the more stereotypically, like, quote-unquote, womanly interests of the group. Um, Nobody doubts he sews. For example, he sews the costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody doubts his masculinity, maybe because Big Dick is right there in his name, but also because I think this isn't that type of group. But even like the having a big dick has not necessarily been good for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you like we tend to equivalent like you know you know the whole like big dick energy and small yeah. dick energy. Like it's that's still patriarchal, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's still patriarchal. Um, so the fact that he's known as Big Dick Richie, but he's unfulfilled in his sex life because actually women don't want a huge penis. <laughs> um, I mean, some women do, but not not everybody. It's not a universal desire the way that, you know, media would tell us that it is. Um, what was I saying? Well, we got distracted with Big Dick. I got distracted with Big Dick Richie. Um, anyway. He, oh, he he likes Backstreet Boys. No one yeah, questions. He likes, yeah, yeah. Nobody questions it. Um, He's more womanly. Yeah, but traits. I do appreciate that it's established earlier that he likes Backstreet Boys. So when the song comes on, he's not joyfully dancing despite it, but because of it. It informs his performance because mm-hmm. it's something he already enjoys. And it takes that away from being like purely a performance for her. It's about his joy, too, mm-hmm. because he doesn't think he can perform outside of the fireman role given to him by Dallas. Um, It's not an attempt to pander to the cashier who seems entirely disinterested. Though the dance is meant to make her smile, the song is really all about Richie. 
And this is notable because Richie doesn't feel uncomfortable with the song, nor does he seem to feel particularly uncomfortable with the dance. We might, as the audience, but Richie doesn't. While the scene is a bit awkward because it's a man taking off his clothes in a public setting, it's not because the song is suddenly a comedic choice or because Richie doesn't want to be there or because the cashier is uncomfortable. She looks bored, not uncomfortable. Um, I mean, this and like the song is a certified banger. So it, it's, it, I feel like in another situation, the song would also be part of the challenge. Yeah. And or a joke. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's not. It's not. It's established earlier in the film that Richie likes the Backstreet Boys. Because they're good. Because they're good. And he's right. Yeah. Uh, another quote here from Grown Woman Shit by Amanda Ann Klein. Um, Throughout the performance, Zoe is unable to suppress her smile. Thus, rather than capturing the moment of unrestrained physical pleasure, the orgasm, we see a moment of unrestrained emotional pleasure, the smile. The woman's smile, that is, her pleasure, becomes the marker of a job well done. The final scene of the film is a wordless montage of Mike and his crew on the boardwalk laughing and smiling. There is no embrace or kiss between Mike and Zoe, or any other couple for that matter. Instead, the final image is medium is a medium shot of Mike watching fireworks with his crew, smiling. Then the credits roll. <laughs> so one interesting thing that this essay brings up is the idea that, that a tsunami of dollar bills, that's how they refer to it in the movie, <laughs> uh, stands in for an orgasm, which I think is a fair assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't see sex in this movie, nor do we see any orgasm, but the culmination of these dance scenes is the cascade of money. Um, it's interesting to consider that in the context of the first film, which is very much about accruing money and how much of an uphill battle that is, versus the second, where it seems to represent pleasure and nothing else. Like, money and pleasure seem to be the same thing in Magic Mike XXL. They are not different. In the world of the second movie, nobody seems to be struggling with money. Well, that's not entirely true because uh, Mike is unable to provide yeah. his employee with health insurance. Um, and he seems upset about that. Uh, money is either everywhere or it's this sort of imagined or in this sort of imagined world, it's unnecessary. Instead, the essay suggests that it stands in for a visual representation of orgasm. I don't think it's necessarily one to one, but the dollar bills certainly represent a celebration of pleasure, which orgasm could be a part of. I think it's like like that visualization is yeah. needed, I think, especially in a world where uh, a world where like like we were saying, like female pleasure is not yeah. celebrated, but money is celebrated. Right. And this, like, throwing shit ton of money at people, that that's an easy way to show that. Yeah. And, and what I mean by the not one-to-one thing is that the women in these scenes are probably not orgasming yeah, and throwing bills at the same time. Uh, the scenes are meant to be pleasurable. And one of the visual ways to signal that the promised pleasure has been fulfilled is the shower of bills. Yeah. Or they could be orgasming. What do I know? Yeah, what do you know? I don't have fucking you know. Have you ever been? I have not. Um, but notably, the final dance sequence with Zoe doesn't involve her throwing a bunch of dollar bills because it's not about her sexual pleasure. She has felt off kilter and unhappy since she was taken advantage of, which has robbed her of her ability to really want things the way that she did before. The dance, therefore, doesn't inspire sexual pleasure for her or not entirely sexual pleasure. I would be surprised if she was like, this is not sexual at all while this is going on. But as we discussed earlier, simply desire. She finds that she wants something again and her smile is the closure to the story and the culmination of the dance rather than the dollar bills as fulfillment of sexual pleasure. Like, I can imagine Hearst just being like, this silly little man. This <laughs> silly little man. <laughs> <laughs> this is silly. Um, another quote here from... Oh, actually, this is a different one. I haven't quoted this one yet. Uh, Every little thing he does, entrepreneurship and appropriation in the Magic Mike series by Broderick Chow, who writes... Uh, Magic Mike XXL's long second act is a tour de force of stripping set at Domina, a mansion in Savannah, Georgia that resembles a former plantation run by Mike's former mentor and her lover, Rome. And uh, sorry, former 
mentor and lover, Rome, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, Domino's is a private club where black men strip for black women. Mike has brought his crew here to beg the help of Rome, who they want to act as MC in place of Dallas. This rather trivial dramatic action is an excuse to show more, quote, bared man flesh, unquote. But its uncommon purpose is to demonstrate the indebtedness of Mike's magic to his mentor, Rome. The sequence is an ambiguous piece of filmmaking, which both celebrates black female desire and intimacy and objectifies black men, black male virtuosity. On the one hand, the sequence is unusual in mainstream cinema in that it portrays black female desire, intimacy, and enjoyment without trauma or black pain. Um, from me, that we don't get the on the other hand. We'll talk about that a bit later. We want to talk about this part first. Um, Overall, this essay is about entrepreneurship as a response to neoliberal. Well, it's not all about that, but this essay talks about entrepreneurship as a response to neoliberalism and financial precarity and how the films interact with race, which is to say that they largely don't or they don't in particularly meaningful ways. Um, as Chow discusses here, there's sort of a double-edged sword effect in Magic Mike XXL where the desires and pleasures of black women are centered, which is great and unusual. Uh, but on the other hand, black male characters are merely accessories to the women's pleasure or helpers to the white characters. Um, there are men of color in the Kings of Tampa, but it's Ken and Mike we largely see interacting with the black men in this movie, who both of whom are white. Um, Andre and Malik mysteriously vanish during the scene <laughs> at the divorcees. Like, they are not there. Yeah. It's very weird. Um, at their house, and we see the white characters reach their pinnacle of the story with the aid of Andre and Malik, uh, but little thanks or compensation. Uh, so with the first film being about about the way the deck is stacked against the have-nots of the world, it does feel sort of disappointing that the labor of black men is consumed, but not celebrated in yeah. the same way. Um, I do want to talk briefly about the centering of... There is uh, Twitch at the end. Well, that, he plays Malik. Um, that's who I'm talking oh. about. Um, but even so, he's not like Center. part of the group. Um... I do want to talk briefly about the centering of pleasure of black women, though. Um, as I mentioned, that's an unusual thing in film, especially because the primary characters in this movie are men. And Zoe seems like a love interest and is white. But there is an extended scene where black women's interests and desires are foregrounded with a surprising amount of attention to detail. In The Pleasure Principle of Magic Mike XXL, Sonic Visibility Toward Female Audiences, Werner references the song Freakin' You that plays at Domino's and how that specific cultural reference resonated with her and other black women in the audience. It enhanced the specificity of the scene as the song was largely popular among black women in the 90s and not so much outside of that group. Yeah, I've never heard that song. Yeah, and that specificity helped the audience, including Werner, feel as though it was their specific desire being catered to and not the more general desires of women. Because black women are so devalued in our culture, something as simple as song choice carries a lot of weight. And again, I want to emphasize there that the choice of song centered black female desire, not just female desire. Because like they could have chosen to play any rap song, right? Yeah. Or any R&B song. And they chose that one in particular. Um and that's remarkable. Like that's worth remarking upon. Um but I think Chow is ultimately correct in that the movie could have done more to celebrate black men in the way it celebrates women and the more specific subset of black women who I should point out are centered primarily in that one scene and not again. Um, why are there no black men in the Kings of Tampa? Couldn't we have added one for this movie? Not like a temporary <laughs> one like Andre and Andre or and or Malik, but one who is there from the outset. Maybe somebody who replaced Mike on the Kings of Tampa roster. To see white men bene benefiting from the tutelage of black men is disappointing, even as I think that this next quote hits the nail on the head as far as what the film was trying to do. Hmm. Um, so this is the no this is another quote from Magic Mike XXL by Kate Renenbaum. 
Um, the real desire at the heart of XXL isn't to reinforce divisions by exploitatively celebrating a system of looking aimed at the at the lady part having spectator as a cheap corrective to the far better served non-uterine scopic regime. If this were indeed the case, the scattered complaints about the film, quote unquote, objectifying men, an odd charge to make in regards to the most ahem, ahem, fleshed out characters in the film, uh, might ring a little less hollow. Rather, Magic Mike XXL's wish is that the spaces we move through, though configured by race, class, gender, sexuality, and age, be different, but like Rome's rooms, not impermeable. That fluidity, not to be confused with flaccidity, (laughs) of bodily performance and suppleness of attitude can function as a form of conveyance through the series of unfamiliar, heterogeneous spaces that, like Matt Bomer's Ken, who is thrilled to take notes from Donald Glover slash Childish Cambino's brand of freestyle musical healing, we can approach these spaces as learners rather than intruders, and that we can figure out figure how to be at ease within these spaces, putting others at ease in the process. It is then perhaps the final mark of Magic Mike XXL's prowess that, having wished this not at all simplistic wish, its fashioning of a world made in that wishful image looks so damned easy and so damned attractive. So I agree with Chow that the treatment of black men in this story doesn't hold up in comparison to the treatment of everybody else. I also think there's truth to Redenbaum's writing here, which is that I think um, Magic Mike XXL is envisioning a sort of post-racial, post-class, post-sexuality, post-age picture of desire. I think it's making the case we all have desires and we can unite on that front. Like something that is shared between all of us is desire. But we have specific desires, too. The desires at Domina are different from the desires at the mansion, right? Mm-hmm. The desires at the um, the drag show are different than the desires at the competition, right? Everybody is desiring different things, but we can move through these spaces of desire on the notion that we all have desires. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, the real world isn't any of those things, right? The real world is not post-racial, post-class, post-sexuality, etc., Um, So the comparative absence of black men really sticks out. And I'm not defending that because we could really have had it all right. (laughs) We could have had it all. We did not need to say, well, this movie isn't about that. So we don't have it. We could have had it (laughs) like we did not. It did not need to be an either or. Um, But there is a sort of fairy tale quality to Magic Mike XXL that I think is enhanced by how it follows the hero's journey. There is something about this movie. The quality of this movie is unreal. Like not just like in in the like colloquial sense, but this movie does not feel real. (laughs) It feels like a dream. The way that it moves from one scene to another with very little explanation. (laughs) Well, even like when he when. Mr. Mike, uh, Mr. Magic, um, <laughs> is going to what he thinks is going to be a funeral. The coloring in that is yeah. very like like wa- like stepping through the looking glass. Mm-hmm. It very much, especially like the woman who we don't know who she is. She's just bouncing around <laughs> with the helmet on. <laughs> yeah, it is in real life the choreographer. We looked it up. Um, it was because it seemed weird, but like having that context doesn't seem as weird. Yeah. Um, but it almost kind of felt like you're he's falling through the lip- looking glass yeah. into this other world because that lighting is so bizarre yeah and in in the context of the first film too i felt like the lighting was super weird and the colorizing was really weird and it feels like this movie almost takes a it it sidesteps it in that it doesn't get less weird it's just different weird yeah um 
I think it's consciously trying to create a world based on desire where all of those things can be true. But where it falls, where it fails in that is that it doesn't do enough to address the concerns of the real world that we live in. I enjoy the sort of imaginative, like, this is how it could be work that the movie's doing. But I think it would be a stronger movie if it actively engaged with some of the issues it is trying to imagine a world beyond. Because the lack of, like, black men with agency outside of helping white characters is a failure of our worlds. And that in this idealized world Magic Mike XXL is imagining, it seems to be that that issue is not resolved. So therefore, it is not an ideal world. Yeah. Um, I can see that they're trying to make this ideal. If they had the ideal world, then it would be the female gaze, would it not? Well, then that would suggest female supremacy, which is not actually mm, I see. equality. Mm, I see. Um, do you have anything else to say about that whole pleasure no, it's very interesting, and I think that this movie is impressive. It makes some clear choices. I'm curious about the new one. Yeah. How many? There are, is, there's three. This there's, will be the last this one. This will be the last one. Yeah. This will be the third one. Yes, the okay. third one will be the last one. The last thing I want to talk about is art versus work. Um, a lot of these essays are about work and labor, which is totally fair. Um, but few of them consider stripping or more broadly dance as art, which I find a bit frustrating yeah. as I'm reading them. Like, I would argue that the first movie is about stripping as work, and the second is about stripping as art or creative expression. They're trying to reclaim the act that they love, dance and giving pleasure, as a joyful thing after Dallas's exploitation before they move on with their lives into whatever the next stage of their life will be. I think it's hard in our culture to disentangle work from obligation because we live under capitalism, where if we don't sell our labor, we starve. Work, as a word, therefore becomes something we don't want to do right? Like there's just an association between work and bad. Um, but I, in fact, like doing work, not necessarily my job, which I need to live, but creating art like this podcast. I enjoy doing this. Yeah. It is work. I have to do a lot of work to make this happen, but I like it. Um, or gardening or writing or working on something with other people. Any or of cooking. these. Yeah. Anything. These things are work or labor, but they're not bad just because they are those things. I may never enjoy cleaning my house, but it is nonetheless labor that needs to be done. But even activities I enjoy can be labor. And what I find interesting about Magic Mike XXL is that in the first movie, dancing was largely exploitative and in the realm of the kind of bourgeoisie proletariat labor relations, and that the dancers sell their labor, their dance, while Dallas reaps most of the benefits. Dallas even controlled the way that they expressed themselves down to like determining what costumes and routines they were doing. But in Magic Mike XXL, they're reclaiming dancing from their association with Dallas. Dancing is art. Even erotic dancing is art. Just because it is sometimes performed for a paycheck does not erase the fact that it is art. We understand that about many other art forms like painting or writing. But I really think that because we're talking specifically about erotic dancing, there's an even further devaluation of it. Our culture does not like sex work and it views sex work as the domain of women and therefore men doing sex work is demeaning and emasculating, which is kind of horribly funny in a way. Like, like fellas, is it gay to make women feel loved and beautiful and sexy? (laughs) (laughs) Just one of the really weird things about patriarchy. It is. Um, Anyway, my point here is that the thing I love about Magic Mike XXL is that it feels to me like it's letting these characters reclaim the passion of creating art from capitalism. And in my opinion, it imagines a world in which a lot of the pressures that make that impossible no longer exist. Is it perfect at that? Not really. But what makes it interesting to me is that overlap of labor, exploitation, art, and the specific fact that it is about men in the business of providing pleasure to women. And that just like, that is to me what 
what makes this movie so fascinating is that it is to me explicitly haha about reclaiming art and the creation of art under capitalism and that joy that goes along with it yeah the joy that you experience from creating art and sharing art with other people even if it isn't for money um i think someone uh some of those awful people up who are not wanting to give the writers more money was like yeah so these writers will come back because they love the work right yeah (laughs) no no they won't i could just write and not give it to you yeah um do you have anything else to say about magic mike no it was it was impressive it was really interesting and um fun to pick apart and i'm impressed and um yeah it was good yeah it's a good movie it was good i'm curious i will be watching the new one yeah for sure we will be watching it yeah for sure um so that's it for this episode you can find us online at fakey girls cast which all has all of our previous episodes um for this one what do i recommend listening to uh i feel like the Star Wars prequel yeah, episode yeah, yeah. about the hero's journey. Maybe The Last Unicorn. There's a lot about art in there. Listen, I always suggest The Last Unicorn. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. Um, there's a couple for you. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Emily for helping with our episode transcriptions. And if you like this episode, consider supporting our Patreon, patreon.com slash fakegeekgirls, or click the link in the show notes. Um, you could get, for $5, you can get access to the entire outline, which is like 27 pages long crazy there's a lot of sources in here that i had to cut because this is a it's a meaty film a beefy film if you will um next time we're gonna be talking about spice world yay i found i think like eight articles so far that really? are about spice world so i'm excited yeah i think that'll be an interesting one i'm excited because we've we've talked about spice girls a long 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 time ago and i think since then my feelings have, not spice world the spice girls and the and the feminism of that time and i think mm-hmm. my thoughts have progressed as as we you know i've grown up obviously and so i'm really excited to talk about it yeah i think we'll be talking about post-feminism a lot in that one um and yeah i think it'll be a good one it's gonna be good i know it i know it i know it i know it all of our episodes are good (laughs) um that's it all right catch on the flip side